0: We're here at the very, the very final panel and don't worry, people have asked me, this will not go on for two hours. We'll, we'll speak for about an hour or so and then we can move over to wine and, and um, to dinner afterwards. So there's so many different strands um, uh, which one could follow up and it's impossible to do that justice. So this is not a summing up panel um, because we couldn't do that. Uh, but just to think about two sets of questions, one is about... Endings, which follows on from our earlier discussion about chronology, periodization. So, what, at what point, how did the Cold War, in fact, ever end? Uh, uh, several people have talked about the winners of the Cold War. The Cold War was won. This is perhaps the starting point for, for this um, conversation now. Um, it also touches on an earlier conversation about nostalgia by, by Yussi and various people who mentioned it. And it, I guess it makes sense also in the in the context of the welfare states final discussion of this idea that um, uh, both, uh, in East and West states saw massively increased um, social expenditure, so they were clear winners of the Cold War in, a, in, a, in effect, which is a kind of the average citizen, and so, since the end of the Cold War that has stopped, so there's a certain nostalgia for, this, for the social security of, that, of the Cold War era as well perhaps. Uh, and, of course, the, the, the concern about the complexity and heterogeneity of current global um, uh, political and economic um, uh, uh, the landscape, where it's very hard to find the, 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 the immediate allies and enemies. So that's one set of questions. And then we, we're we very keen to connect that, if at all possible, to the question of um, afterlives, particularly in the very practical sense. We could, after all this talk, we can say, so what? Well, so what in that we are all in some way uh, involved in teaching this history uh, in the classroom and uh, uh, some of our colleagues are also teaching it in the, to, to school children, where right? The Cold War is a staple of the, of the history um, curriculum. So we've got two people, Piers and Ellador, who will hopefully start with very short observations about endings and then we can think about Angela and um, Bastian, particularly about teaching and open it up and then we'll have for a glass of wine. Okay, so Piers. Okay, you to start? want me to start? So, P- okay, yeah. well. Piers has long worked on Western Europe and European integration, particularly the early bits of European integration.
1: And, 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 some, and sometimes and Cold War. Yeah. Um, <laughs> okay, well, um, let me first of all thank the organisers for inviting me. It's, it's been a fascinating event, and, and in some ways, my first conclusion is, or sort of first point, is simply to pick up on, on what I take out of today, which is in a sense a a confirmation of my own impression of the way in which Cold War historiography has been going. But what we've heard and and spoken about today only confirms this, namely the incredible complexity of the field compared to 10 years ago, 15 years ago, 20 years ago. Uh, So the Cold War history has exploded in multiple directions. We've Complicated the the chronology. Um, We've uh, got a, a lot of people are making very worthy efforts to complicate and get away from some of the more simplistic binaries of the old analysis. We've gone global today's discussion has perhaps been a bit European in its focus but if you try and do the global Cold War properly you really are having to bring in every part of the world etc. I think Vanuatu was mentioned early on uh, I would hesitate to disclaim I knew much about the Cold War in Vanuatu but it really was a global conflict uh, and I think we've also picked up on the way in which it is something that, that intersects with multiple other dynamics in, 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 the, in the relevant period. Uh, Decolonisation has been specifically mentioned. I could mention my own specialist field, which is European integration history, where one of the things I think has happened over the last 10 to 15 years is we've begun to wake up the fact that there is an interplay between what was happening in European integration and, and, and the Cold War. And the sort of extraordinary complexity of economic, scientific, cultural, and multiple... Other readings. Now, all of this, I think, is very, very welcome and good, but we do have to be careful with it. And I'll, I'll just briefly say something in the direction of the teaching challenge. I'm very struck when trying to teach the course that I teach, uh, that I've inherited from Marna Westad at the LSE in how difficult I think students find this complexity to deal with and I don't think it's just students, I think it's also journalists, I think it's also uh, sort of the general population to the extent they're interested in history at all. In a sense the old Cold War was easy to understand, it was two countries, two ideologies, one against another, It 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 was a binary, it was relatively easy to grasp. And I, I'm, I've just been sort of over the last few days slogging through large numbers of assessed essays on the, on, on the Cold War. The thing that repeatedly comes across in the discussions of the historiography is people get the traditionalist, revisionist, post-revisionist thing. Uh, But they don't get it beyond that. The historiography of the Cold War ends with Gaddis and post-revisionism in 1978 or 79. Thereafter, it's an ungraspable, excessively complicated landscape. And so I think one of the challenges we have, both as Cold War historians, but also as Cold War educators, is to try and work out how we can keep hold of some of that complexity, appreciate the wealth of, of, that we've added, while at the same time producing something that is comprehensible enough and easy enough for people to, to get hold of and to actually use in, 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 in their daily lives and in, in discussing current politics, etc. So I, I, I think it's, sort of, it's good, the complexity, but we have to realise it's a slightly double-edged sword. The second point linked to that is this issue of binaries. Again, I I like the emphasis again and again on getting away from very clear polarities between East and West, pointing out the similarities, pointing out the way in which there were convergences and and intertwining effects and and getting away from the idea of monolithic blocks, etc. All wonderful. But again, let's, let's not push it too far because let's remember that ultimately the Cold War, at least in the eyes of many of its protagonists, was a binary struggle. Um, We as historians may want to say actually it wasn't quite so simple but I think we do need to remember that the rhetoric of the era and it wasn't just a rhetorical device but it was actually a fundamental belief of many of the protagonists was in a conflict between two U- rival universalisms to rival systems of organising, whether it be science or the economy or society or politics or the military or many th- other things. So, yes, let's complicate binari- binaries, but let's not throw them out, because if we do so, I think we denature Cold War history rather fundamentally so I think we need to cling on to some of that the final thing that I want to touch upon is this issue of where, where, where it ends and again I think we, we need to be careful about being too clever um, I, I think it's absolutely fine for us to complicate the ending, to recognize the diversity of chronolo- chronologies according to the particular part of the world that you're looking at, to look at the, the, the in some of the sort of themes and sub disciplinary areas, there are all different chronologies. But I do think we need to recognize that something important happens at the end of the 1980s and 1990s that does fairly fundamentally change things. And I think we can talk about Cold War legacies. We can talk about Cold War survivals. We can talk, perhaps, about the persistence of the Cold War in certain parts of the world, whether it be Cuba or Korea or whatever. But I do think we're doing ourselves a disservice if we buy in too easily into the rather sort of sloppy journalism about, for instance, current relations with uh, with Putin's Russia being a continuation of the Cold War. It isn't. It's not fundamentally a clash clash of universalizing systems any longer. Uh, Not even Putin claims that he has a a model that is applicable the world over in the way that communism once did. And therefore we are dealing fundamentally with a rather different struggle, even if it's dangerous, even if it could potentially have disastrous military consequences, even if it's destabilising, etc. And I'm not minimising any of those possibilities, but I do think we need to recognise that the beast is rather different from that which we studied in the Cold War. So, I, I do think the ending, in a way, is where we think it is. It is 1989 to 1992 for most, in most senses, in most respects, and in most areas. Although there are important things that endure, there are important consequences that are still with us, there are important legacies that have shaped subsequent history and will doubtless go on shaping history. But let's not let's not throw the baby out with the bathwater and in our search for complexity end up turning what has the advantage as a historical subject of now being a closed period um, into an open period again. It isn't. (laughs) Um, And I think that's where I'll leave things. Thank
0: Thank you. Thank you very much. Um, Elidor, who would like to go next? So Elidor has has been working for ages on socialist globalisation and uh, thinking particularly about Albania and its connections with Eastern bloc, the Soviet Union with China, which is a, a, a very neat vantage point from which to study this big, this, this very big history. What do you think about endpoints?
2: Um, uh, thank you very much, uh, thanks for the invitation, it's been a great day and I was very lucky to be a fellow with this program a couple of years ago and, and I always love coming back uh, here. Um, uh, the, uh, when I teach a class on the Cold War in New York, uh, typically it's a class of 30 students from 25 nationalities. Uh, from all across the former communist world, first, first generation immigrants. And one of the exercises that I give them typically is a, an essay on when did the Cold War end. Now I get to answer my own essay, the question. <laughs> that I, and occasionally, because I frame the question already that way, they look for a year. That's typically what one would be expected to do. But once in a while, a student will come back with a question to a question. And so that's what I would like to do today too, um, and ask not so much when did it end, but for whom and where. Um, and just to, uh, and hopefully not be too clever, I very much agree with Piers that there's the something fundamentally changes in international system. There's no point in denying it. The international system that emerges after nineteen ninety-one is very different. Uh and and so with the with the ongoing events in Ukraine, there's been a tendency to read editorial after the editorial about how the Cold War never ended. But the reality is that the this international system that emerged in the nineteen nineties was very different and it was bound perhaps to be unstable. Uh, uh, Russia was not going to sort of go quietly, uh, just just and 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 as it, as the collapse of the Soviet Union was experienced in Russia. So, but the year 1989, the fact of the matter is that it did not mean much for some people in the former communist world. It certainly did not mean anything for for people living in Albania. It didn't mean much for people living in North Korea. It didn't mean much in some of these some of these. Uh, Places where either there was no transition out or it played out rather differently And so uh, I want to make just three very ideas uh, to make briefly three uh, uh, Contributions and the first one is related to if there might think of an after effect of the Cold War and our idea of what revolutions are and how they play out. It was very inspiring what happened in Germany in 1989. It's very inspiring what happened in Poland. It's very inspiring what happened in Prague. But I think that there's been a tendency in the literature to build a a myth around the idea of people taking to the streets and bringing down authoritarian rulers. And we saw a little bit of a playback of that with the Arab Spring. It is a very unpredictable and most of the times failed proposition to bring down authoritarian regimes and uh, the, 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 the tendency to, to, to envision a revolution I think um, in, in terms of what happened in Eastern Europe in 1989 I, I would say that that has been a, a little bit problematic but uh, for many Europeans particularly and we've talked today a lot and very intelligently about the East and West but I would say that there's a North and South divide in, in Europe that is very real that persists across 1989-1991 and for many Europeans uh, the End of the Cold War was just continuity in different forms of exclusion. Just the ability to leave one country, for instance. Something that people in the Balkans could not take for granted. Many of them still cannot. Uh, visa regimes. Uh, 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 mass migration of hundreds of thousands of Albanians towards places like Italy and Greece. A kind of a preview of what we're seeing these days with mass migrations across the Mediterranean. So uh, there was still isolation even after 1989 and even after 1991. Uh, for, for, for many people uh, in this, you know in certain parts of, of the continent. Secondly, uh, it is often said we hear that the Cold War ended with a whimper and not a bang. True enough, that end could have been a lot more destructive and earth-shattering than it was. But for some people, I would say that actually the early 90s were absolutely traumatic. Uh, if you were living in Yugoslavia, your whole world collapsed. Uh, if you, you you lost your sense of what your reality was over over a series of years. And in the literature, sometimes we tend to bracket that story. We tend to make it into a local story. It's a regional story. It's something having to do with Yugoslavia. And whatever happens in the Balkans is somehow not no bearing uh, to the world around it. But looking back today, it actually, a lot of the rhetoric and the nationalism and the the anti-Muslim, anti-Albanian or Bosniak, uh, uh, sentiment in the early 90s it seems like a warning more than, a, more than something of the past. And third and final, uh, it seems to me that the Cold War also has shaped our understanding of the whole democracy building and democracy promotion uh, industry. Um, the way that we think about uh, what goes into building a democracy, the fact that we rank countries based on freedom, that we have measurable indexes for freedom, that we, we rank countries as, as if they're singles on charts. Uh, this kind of stuff endures, endures in the policy world, it endures in academia, it endures in thinking about uh, how what democracy is and how it can be it can be thought. A cynic would say that having a Cold War live also works for academics because it brings in money, it brings in funding, it fills our classes with students. And so a cynic would say that actually people do want to, 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 to keep talking about the Cold War in many ways. But I do think that uh, in terms of how we think about democracies, in terms of how we think about democratization, democracy promotion, all of those very real and very current uh, problems uh, certainly have been shaped, if not directly uh, by the Cold War, certainly by the post-Cold War world. So I will stop there, and then uh, we can talk more on during the Kyoshin. Mm. Thank
0: you. Thank you very much. And then should we have two com- sets of comments on teaching? Um, Angela, would you like to go first? Okay. So okay. Angela niasen is, a, is a, a, an MA student here at Berkberg. Uh, she's also a history teacher in Blackheath high school and thinking a lot about the GCSE curriculum and how the Cold War features in that.
3: Okay, um, yes. So I teach a GCSE module and it is from 1943 to 1991 um, and and it's one part of um, four different modules that they do over a two year period and they will be doing this in year 11 which is their second year of their GCSE. Uh, what they would have completed before. This is a component on Russia, for example, so they have a greater understanding of uh, some of the complexities. Um, It is a topic that students really enjoy doing. I teach in a girls' school, an all-girls' school, um, and it's something that they do enjoy and get a lot out of. Um, So that's important, and that's probably why many people want to go on and and study it further. Um, They also, I think, see the connections between what's going on now. So it seems quite contemporary, and they can, they can understand a lot more of it, so where some of the other history, they, Russian history, they find very difficult. Um, uh, so they, they find this much uh, many connections that they can make between, um, in, in between it. Uh, in terms of some of the things we talked about today, uh, we, I do it's taught in terms of periodization, so starting in 1943, so it's looking at the Grand Alliance and how that shifts over to the Cold War, so that's our starting point. Um, and then our next sort of development is, is actually looking at Germany as uh, the key the kicking off of the, um, the whole process um, and in particular we're looking at a sort of American aggressive policy that's what the way it's come across in our text so for the first time a lot of students are, are having to change their mindset because they come in with a mindset that it's also at the Soviet Union's fault um, which I think is quite interesting because they are not as old as I am, so they haven't lived through as much of, of, of being through the Cold War as such, um, but they still have that mindset that the Soviet Union is, is bad and wrong and the worth, and aggressors. So it's quite interesting when you start putting different ideas in front of them, they start to change their minds. So once you've done that, you can start looking at um, the concept of who is to blame for the start of the Cold War. And then suddenly they can begin to shift and see that, um, yes, or maybe it's, it's not just the Soviet Union, it's uh, what has America done to, to um, have this occur. Um, some of the other things we talked about today, which is that, I think that was all the starting bit, the middle period, about um, decolonization its impact. We, we don't study that, and I think that's something that's missing. Um, so it's very much about the relationship between America and uh, between uh, um, Russia, uh, the Soviet Union. Uh, the middle period, we look at crises, so the one in Berlin, for example, Cuba and Czechoslovakia. Um, so I think that's actually something that's missing, is to see the impact. Uh, uh, I think it would really help students to understand a lot of what goes on in the world, so it's much about what happened in Europe, particularly and what's happening in America, and Cuba is the only outside um, place that we look at. So that's something that I think is missing from the study. Uh, and then in terms of the ending. Um, the way that we teach it is very much looking at the economic factors, the main reason for the ending of the Cold War, particularly uh, America's great spending on the, um, on the Star Wars program. And, um, and also from the point of view of Russia and the spending, overspending in Afghanistan and uh, just maintaining its, its empire such, that's the way we look at it. Um, and then in terms of some of the exam questions that we do, a, a lot of it does make the students so things like explain the relationship between America and the Soviet Union in the years 1979 to 1987, a lot of the conclusions that the students come to is often ideological. They, they see, maybe that's the way it's presented in the textbook, it is about the ideological difference that they see as the answer, whether that's right or wrong. That's mm-hmm. for the So that's what's been presented from the academics. Thank you,
0: thank you very much. And then certainly by the time they start their undergraduate degrees, they uh, go back to basics again. I think so. Bastian is teaching uh, is, is a teaching assistant on the on the big survey course at the LSE, um, and he's talking about that.
4: Yep. Um, hi everyone. If you haven't seen me all day, that's because unfortunately I couldn't make it to the rest of the program. So I hope what I say will in uh, some way connect to the discussions you've been having um, uh, today. Um, thank you very much, Jessica, of course, for, for inviting me. I'll talk a little bit from, from just the experience of, of teaching um, this year, the, uh, our Cold War module, which is, as Piers mentioned, the um, old module is designed by Arna Westad, so it's very much based on the Cambridge history of the Cold War, uh, which I'm sure most of you are familiar with. Um, as you'll know, it has a very, um, relatively, anyway, broad conception of the Cold War, um, so I think it actually already uh, incorporates some uh, aspects of what um, this wider, for instance, more globalized Cold War history um, looks like. Um, I think one of the key concepts that we, we keep coming back to is is the idea of intersection, um, the idea that the Cold War intersects with uh, decolonization, that it intersects with European integration, uh, that it intersects with developments in Latin America. Um, I, Appreciate hearing other people's um, ideas about that, but I think it, it works quite well because it gives a very clear, uh, a very clear visual image, uh, and a very clear idea that there is something mixing here, um, but it's not uh, sort of melting together necessarily. Uh, you have these two things; you can analyze separately, and you can analyze how they how they cross over. Um, so we, we study the Cold War very much as a global phenomenon. We emphasize um, the importance of well. Now we're in the 60s in the course, and uh, so we emphasize in the Third World. Uh, quite a bit and emphasizing the importance of, of local actors, the idea also of tails wagging dogs is one that's uh, that's recurring. Um, I think it's nevertheless a limited move away from the older conceptions uh, of the Cold War as a strictly bipolar conflict, in that it um, still is concerned with this kind of competition, it still conceives of the, of the Cold War as a global competition, militarily, ideologically, um, and it doesn't move away from that. So. The importance of those tales is because they white dogs, um, but that's that's their their relevance um, still. Um, I think that is something to um, to grapple with. Um, of course, is how do you in, in, in incorporate perspectives that don't have this very uh, direct link, causal link, uh, to the overall superpower competition? Um, one way I notice students responding quite. Strongly, and it strikes me that perhaps they welcome to Blackie High School uh, is that they're very interested in sort of challenging this uh, Victor's narrative uh, of the Cold War, um, and so some of them go into very, very strong, almost 60 style revisionism, um, which I think on the on the whole is, is interesting, um, and you know within boundaries is, is stimulated. Some, sometimes somebody goes all the way to the mirror image of the victors' uh, um, history, uh, but usually it stimulates this interesting, uh, interesting well, sort of more even-handed um, analysis. And of course, that does have, I mean, we're not primarily trying to uh, teach students something in terms of uh, relevance of public discourse, which this relates to, but also scholarly. In scholarly terms, this relates to this, you know, very established body of, of historyography. Um, and so it's a good thing that we, we teach students to think about that critically. Uh, one way in which that helps very, very directly with this course is, is that we focus a lot on archives. Um, and of course the Cold War has plentiful um, and ending examples of how new archival findings have changed the narrative. Um, that does present us with one dilemma, I think, which would maybe, interesting, maybe be interesting to talk about. Um, which is that, on the one hand, you've got this way of of structuring a class, really, um, that there's the established literature, say, on the start of the Cold War, about uh, the orthodox position, the revisionist, post-revisionist position, and then you can relate to newer findings and say, okay, well, so these old perspectives need to be revised in such and such a way. On the other hand, some of the newer perspectives, I think, um, in Cold War studies um, don't have such an easy sort of counter uh, earlier counterpart well, that 's the don 't um, have such a, an easy counterpart um, against which to juxtapose them um, and so you end up with a choice either you go on, you go off and uh, look at the older story first and then look at, the, at what needs to be changed about it that 's about the length of a week of a week 's you know class on the particular topic or you go into these newer perspectives i I would be curious to hear anybody who has a way of combining those two things because it strikes me as something that's, uh, that's rather hard to do. You could of course do that. You could just go away from the older literature and give a new narrative based on newer insights on say a more cultural or social perspectives, uh, gender. Um, but I, it would be hard I think to couple that with the existing historiography just because those questions in some sense are new, there's not that much on it in the older historiography. Um, well, I think I'll, I'll leave it at that, and we can discuss more. Thank you very much.
0: Right, so the the floor is open, really. Um, uh, I guess one area we can we talk about in particular is that the, the, the day has shown, as Piers says, the wonderful complexity of um, recent Cold War scholarship. Um, we're talking about histories in the plural. We've broken down ideas of monolithic blocks, and yet, what do we do, how do we teach this complexity in a way that um, makes sense to students to, and what master narratives, if any, um, can we use? <laughs> uh, there's lots of ideas, so Sandrine and Anne for a
5: start, and Iris and then, yeah. No, it's just, it's just a
6: question, I mean, I, I, I don't teach the Cold War as a topic myself, but I teach what I call Eastern, uh, Europe between East and West. So I teach the Cold War within this, uh, you know, more long durée perspective, uh, Europe between East and West. So it brings me in a way to put this Cold War in a completely different setting like, for example, uh, developed and backward Europe and so on and so forth. So it forces me and the students to look at it in a different way because we come from the history I mean we are not we, we don't begin uh, with the Cold War itself but in, we begin with Europe and and, and that's why we, we, we <laughs> also yeah. use your article <laughs> yes and um, and uh, so th- th- that's the first thing and the second thing because we have the archives of the international organization not very far we go there and uh, one international organization is interesting about the Cold War, it's the Economic Commission for Europe. And then you know, I got this very interesting question from one student because I select always you know, some files and so on. And uh, who told me, you know, uh, I don't understand because uh, there is no Cold War. It was a fight between 1947 and 1949. Really the, the time when the international organization really very deeply resisted the Cold War. They didn't want the Cold War. So, and he was looking at its file, it was a, an exchange of letters between Rosto and, uh, and, um, and Mirdal. And they were, you know, doing their usual stuff, like before, like uh, we exchange uh, goods between, uh, we want to exchange, we want to set up a, a, a good exchange between Poland and, and Germany on uh, coal and so on and so forth. And it was interesting to have this question. There is no Cold War. It's what he told me. So there is a way of pushing them to ask questions which are unexpected in giving them some documents and to bring them to, to think about, about that. So we don't have to teach that,
0: this complexity. Unless we have to teach a course on the Cold War. Yeah.
7: <laughs> some of us do. And yeah, if you teach a course, maybe, yeah. Thank you very much. I, I was fascinated to hear how our subject is being taught at GCSE, I think it's a real life. Um, I've got, I mean, I'm, I'm s- struck by the fact that
3: you obviously have a hand in designing the curriculum, and it's not handed down to you. No, it is handed down to it's us. Yeah. 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 It is, yeah. So
7: you it's have some flexibility, but not In
3: terms enough. of what my t- interpretation of it is. Yes. <laughs> exactly. yes, but I was thinking, do you get
7: a chance, for example, to show them any primary sources? Do they ever get to look Only to yeah, it. only
3: what's in the text. so We just don't so have the time have to. You have a textbook, and there are some primary sources in there. Yeah. And, and what about um Cold War movies or even
7: movies about the Cold War? Because there's a
5: lot of them around at the moment yep. on TV and. Yes. Um, we do. But again, a they, it's a time timeline did they thing. Watch them? Yeah. Yes, yes. The so
3: that we have watch films true. or I recommend films <laughs> that they watched. Yeah. or. Uh, like I remember speaking to you about, as they watched the cosmonauts, uh, the, the, uh, the um, documentary on the um, space race and how Russia yeah. won the space race, so, so things like that. Yeah. So you can
7: enrich. So that's one to enrich of the them. Yeah, that's yeah. fascinating. Yeah. Um, I think what I take
8: back from this is. Um, Two things: so how difficult it is, but also how easy it is, maybe, to um, to to see that the Cold War is two contradictory things. I mean, on the one hand, I, I, I agree completely with what you say that we shouldn't lose sight of the way that it was central and really dominated world politics, and was, you know, there were there were at least two times during the Cuban Missile Crisis and again in 1982, where it could have easily turned into a hot war, um, you know, with potentially catastrophic effects. And, and the fact that it didn't happen doesn't mean that it wasn't a real risk and that it wasn't you know, serious for the world. So I think there is, you can make a case for that, that it was really a central event in world history. On the other hand, just by changing our perspective, you can sort of provincialize it, too, if you don't put this at the center of your attention, but think of other things like um, you know, developmental um, issues that we talked about before, environmental issues, how do we as humanity appropriate resources, something that began before that continues afterwards, how do we um, talk about nationalism, um, talk about um, what have you, economic gender issues, how do we, we look at this, from, from not from a European, but from an African perspective, where in many ways probably it doesn't make a whole lot of difference whether you're on the Western side or on the <coughs> Eastern side. Um, so um, I, I'm not sure how you can do this in school, but the students, I think, the take would be that depending on your perspective, it can be both. And you don't have one correct or wrong perspective. Um, you know, in the course of events, it can be both very
9: central and a and phase. Well, I had a related question. Uh, Eleanor said that the students you teach to come from all over the world as a very international group, and that's almost certainly true for all of you uh, teaching the Cold War. And I wondered uh, how that affects the way that you teach the subjects and whether, I mean, we, we kind of, the way we're, we're maybe thinking is a model where we're we've got this very complex, nuanced idea of the Cold War, and then there's a very static curriculum or public imagination which we're trying to force our complexity on. But I wonder if it's ever the case the other way around. The fact that uh, the students and that you will teach as such an international group, do they do you ever find them forcing complexity on your narratives, and do you ever find them doing what Iris is talking about, which is maybe decentering or provincialising?
0: Now, abs- uh, this is a very good point also to, to throw back into the group because, of course, we've been talking about Anglo-American teaching here at the front, but there's a lot of you based in a lot of different countries. Um, Do you find that you teach it differently <coughs> as you move to, to jobs as well in new countries? Do you think that, that the, the Cold War is being taught, uh, or you, you are expected to teach it in different terms? Tori, you had the question. Yeah,
5: right? I'm just feeling I mean, very pessimistic today. but. Um, um, uh, it, 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 it's 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 I I conform to the cultural stereotypes <laughs> but <it's, laughs> but, uh, but I mean I mean I, I completely see see your point here about about how you know to what level of complexity can we convey without you know, like falling apart but but also you know like the cold War was. Everywhere, and I think it still is everywhere. Whether we call it the legacy, whether we call it a continuing um, a Cold War, and and we can, you know, convey if su- we can be successful in conveying a history of the Cold War in history classes, whether undergraduate or or high school. But if the students are faced with a very rigid Cold War narrative. In their literature studies, in the films they see, in the in the in the uh, newspapers they read today, and whatever you know, it it sort of feels like we're uh, we're really fighting these um, the, the clouds. I don't I don't know. It's uh, it, uh, it's something so fundamental, and even even if you just step outside of, of, of Cold War history per se, and, and so you would we wouldn't have to. I think we're all on the same page here of the complexities of the Cold War, but people who are not uh, historians, who are not Cold War historians, might not think so critically because they're, you know, they are not aware of these conversations and so on. So it just sort of sneaks in and gets unquestioned and uncontested. So that's that's my concern. That of course we have to start somewhere, and this is a good place to start. But 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 I think it's 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 a much broader problem, and it's much more pervasive. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, I have some Julia,
0: uh, Anatoly and Dina and Dean, okay. Julia? I think it was something you said, did you say early
10: um, on in the day it's very, very hard to shift paradigms? I don't me. Could maybe um, one or more of you who have seen several pens you know, Give an example. of What has led? You know, what what was it? What book was it? And what has you know, led to a, a shift? I'm talking activity. about. I think we've, we've got educators <laughs> <many laughs> here together who are interested in this meeting, yeah, I think, I think, I think, think between um, uh, you know postdoc, um, uh, late career researchers. Oh. And um, what they're saying about the Cold War, um, and what 14 and 15 and 16 year are learning about the wars, it's certainly there is a gap. Um, but obviously
7: paradigms have shifted in Cold sort War. Of and one, I think, the paradigm that your students must be dealing with is that they were probably born in 2002, mm. something like that. Mm. So as they're growing up and going to school, they're thinking about of the post imperial invasions of Iraq. Yeah, that's um, what concerns so me. so the Cold War is really history. It's it's really old history. And and I remember lecturing in Oxford in what five, ten years ago Realising I had to put up a map of a divided Europe and put blue on one side, red on the other, and then I wasn't clever enough to do PowerPoint for Switzerland. <laughs> <laughs> you know, is Switzerland communist or is it capitalist? Oh, and, 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 and that was your But <laughs> the paradox which I'm talking about was thinking of it as a bipolar, essentially a bipolar um, event, and my work and a lot of other people in the 80s was saying, okay, well, you can't forget the Europeans, mm-hmm. and from that you get another paradigm shift, which was very lucky, because at the end of the Cold War you had the new archives and freedom to do that. And we get the sort of stuff we're talking about today, mm-hmm. when we start
11: thinking about East European countries as players. Now, that, that was just completely off-label
7: and off-off the limits yeah. early on. And then we get people like myself, who say, hang on a minute, you know, if you stand in the East and the West, it looks very different from when you stand in Moscow and think yourself encircled by the, the ramp of capitalism. But if you stand in, in Beijing or Peking, as we used to call it, um, it all looks very, very different indeed. And you might start your Cold War after long march with the Sino-Soviet split, which to many Cold War historians is just one week, you know, a nineteen week course respect. So paradigms paradigms are where Establishment writers, thinkers, journalists who trail on behind everybody else, they get stuck on those tracks. And so a paradigm shift is basically knocking them off the rails. And um, when they pick themselves up, they may find the rails changed a bit. I record
11: anymore. i
7: The intersections is it's on its way to, I suspect, a paradigm shift, but if it's intersections, it would be like the European Union in its crisis. It's one bloody crossroad after another. <laughs> you stagger from intersection to intersection, <laughs> crisis to crisis. Something would have to come out of that to make an, a new big paradigm shift and a new narrative, in my view, but I may not.
0: Thank you. I don't know, I think it's, it get these vibrations
8: of doom here. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think this is, first of all, that we have paradigm shifts, that we look at things differently. I think it's, it's normal for Good. Yeah, I mean, that's yeah. what we're here for. Yeah, so, I, you know, it's, there's nothing to be gloomy
12: about. <laughs> I'm, I, I'm, I'm also gloomy, I'm a bit tired. Oh, i sorry. <laughs> 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 yeah. yeah. a I'm, I'm a bit tired. Too, so. Here, like, right, so we're asking this question of you know, how do we the Cold War, and I think about um, uh, Russian high schools, about which I don't know very much. But anecdotally, um, I, I have some sense of what's going on. And the question here emerges is, do, do we even teach it? That is, um, uh, so if you return to ideology, I mean, I think it, it might be useful to, th- to, to think about, of course, um, high school and college curricula as a function of particular ideological ideological projects, and in the Soviet Union, when I think about what is, is and what I've learned anecdotally, or in post-Soviet Russia, what I've learned anecdotally, anecdotally is—and please correct me if, if, if I'm if, if I'm wrong about this—but that there is a curriculum that is on the Cold War. That is the story that is told, especially about the end of the um, Soviet period, is one of you know some kind of. It, 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 it's, it, it's more or less a disaster. It's a, it's a complicated story, but it, it's certainly not. Um, uh, it's it certainly I, my sense is that it doesn't resemble the narratives that are most being presented um, in, in, in um, Anglo-American high schools or Anglo-American universities. Um, and then that brings up the question that so there, so here we have we have it's almost like the 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 field. That we're talking about here today, and, and again, correct correct me if I'm wrong, is missing in a way. I remember there was, and to my shame, I don't remember his, 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 his this this um, scholar's name. Somebody was visiting the European University from European University Institute in Florence and presented a paper on Cold War historiography, and there was no Russian historiography. Yeah, there was no Russian a, there was no Russian historiography in in, in there, and I <coughs> asked him not as a approach, but you know how do Russians fit into this? Thing. Well, I'm not really aware of any of them. So uh, who are, who are, you know, can you tell me something about that? And I, could, you know, I, I, I don't work nominally on the Cold War, so I, so, um, so I couldn't. So that was interesting to me. But then it also comes back to, very quickly, it comes back to this issue. I agree with Pierce that today that we were talking about the Cold War as um, almost kind, of very much on a structural level, um, uh, and try to complicate these binaries. But for people on the ground, um, there were very much these binaries. And then that led me to, to think in the context of how differently things are presumably taught today, um, how basic Cold War phenomena um, and basic Cold War and um, zeitgeists are different in the different places. I mean, for, for, for instance, as far as I know, and again, correct me if I'm wrong, the Cuban Missile Crisis was a much bigger deal in the West than it was in the Soviet Union. Right. And in terms of public culture, the, um, the, um, this idea of nuclear, nuclear apocalypse. Um, did not have the same cultural um, legs in the, in, in the Soviet context as it did in the West because of a, because of an enduring belief, an enduring attachment to to science. So um, <coughs> these are just some some, some thoughts that, that, that came
13: out.
0: Well. Thank you, Dean.
13: Yes, I've taught um, courses on culture in the Cold War in the U.S. and in Austria, and it's very interesting. I, so basically, you know, I showed them films. We talk about the Olympics. We talk about music a lot. Um, and in the US, um, I found students very critical of US policy. Um, and then you have the other student from a Cuban family who's very anti-communist. You encounter that. But I think it was, um, it's been much more interesting in Austria because the Austrian education system or the way Austrians uh, see themselves in Europe and have seen themselves historically in the post-war period in Europe it's very much missing in their um, official national historiography. And for example, if I have a class of 20 students, and I ask the students, "Okay, who has been to Bratislava? Because I think I'll take them on an excursion and show them some socialist era architecture and things like that. Two out of 20 put their hands up, and I say to them, guys, I'm from Australia, and I've been there 20 (laughs) times. And you, who are Austrians, can't even you know, cross the border by bike, car, boat, there are so many ways these days. A border that was, you know, 25 years ago, you couldn't cross without, you know, special permission and it was militarized and so on. And I think there is just something cultural, you know, I spoke about this earlier, this idea of these Slavic neighbors and so on, that there's still this, um, even among, amongst the younger generation, they still don't feel some connection. Um, to these neighbours, Hungarians, the Slovaks, and so on. The Slovaks and Hungarians more because they come coming to Vienna to, to work on mass. <laughs> but um, in Austria, in its education system, this is missing a lot, so you already have to challenge a lot of stereotypes about the East, and, and um, bring in a lot of different cultural examples from the countries close to them. Mm. Joe? Sorry,
0: Dina, um, Dina you
14: know, you know as well. Yeah, Joe, Joe. Jo. Yeah. Yeah. I um, I taught for a while as a teaching assistant in a high school um, before I was um, lecturing, and um, what struck me just about five years ago was how very much, just like Anne said, the the mindset of the, the I say eleven shifted, and in their head the archetypal villain was a something too They were quite obsessed about this, and I think it you know, it's in the games they play, the way they spoke to each other. I, I don't know if the university curriculum responded to how that's become so familiar and the Cold War has become so pale, mainly because it's kind of that's what we used to be. But I also get this other side of they've been in university for a year somebody just to show them something by like Johnson and the that was bad. So you, you kind know, of put them um, over both of those things. And I teach now on a global history of the Cold war, which I didn't create, but I'm of of shut with. Um, <laughs> and I think it's an admirable idea. Well, our students are very strategic. So they'll go, OK, I'll do China Week, Japan Week, and decolonization in Africa. And they don't draw connections between me and I think part of the problem is the text that we have available. So the Cambridge history I find useful, but they will take a chapter in London the rest and there's a kind of lack of accessible texts which make these kind of global connections in a way that first or second year undergraduates or the kind of ones that I teach can can make sense of. Um, And I thought recently that if I could get my hands on it and change it, one way of going at it would be to teach it through thematic sources, so have a couple of weeks which look at film and then a couple of weeks with graphic novels a couple weeks on newspapers and so on, but from mm-hmm. different regions. I, I don't know. I'm just. I've been trying to think my way out of this, but mm-hmm. well, I our last
0: guest. <laughs> um, Dina. Um, a
15: bunch of people. Let's not be Picking up on Natalia's comment that there is no Soviet historiography of Cold War. For the Soviets, the Cold War is an American construct, um, and that's. Uh, in as much as it figures in, say, cartoons and Kerkadzilla or whatnot, it's, it's kind of this like this thing that Americans invented. There really is no Cold War there. Uh, and again, in my own work, for the Soviets, kind of the pinnacle of the Cold War is the malignant report in the American press about the Soviet Union, but the Soviets don't see themselves as engaged in the Cold War. And so, Russian. Um, Russian historiography of the Cold War. Uh, one of the, my most, uh, I think, traumatic experiences as a, a, a first-year graduate student was this conference in Moscow, uh, where <coughs> one presentation actually explained why Western ships uh, appeared more menacing than Soviet ships, and the the, the reason had to do with the structure of their cannons. Um, you know, once. One side had like 90 degree channels, the other side had 45 degree channels. I mean, there was a gender kind of imagery streaming from that uh, <laughs> uh, these pictures, and no one picked on this, and and, and that and, and that made me kind of <laughs> really depressed um, and, and seven And I think it's, uh, it's Russian scholars. Uh, and I'm think i wondering kind of also that kind of scholarship that has been discussed today. Uh, I could not but wonder where, geographically, it is produced today. I mean, we have a very beautiful international assembly here, uh, not so reluctant internationals. Uh, but uh, how many kind of, I even mean, except in how many Russia-based scholars do we have? Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, so I like, just, it's worthwhile thinking, kind of, how is this period studied in different places? Uh, what does uh, geography and kind of traditions of knowledge have to do with this uh, and what kind of scholarship is confused. Um, I teach uh, Russian foreign policy in the University of Amsterdam. Um, and I start in 1945 and I kind of end with, well now Ukraine and Crimea and so on. Uh, and, what, and this course is kind of, it's open to, to everyone. So it's not just people who major in history yeah, studies, not just historians, but we have like astrophysicists in there. Also because we have kind of every, almost every international student, no matter what is their major kind of wonderful course. So I have really kind of I'm talking to a, a great assembly of kids, usually kind of first years or second years. Uh, it really strikes me in course evaluations, they're really appreciative for just experiencing the Russian viewpoint. Oh, I never thought I should read Putin's speech to understand the Russia is all That being said, again, I'm I'm uh, uh, some having spent like three years in the Netherlands, I'm I'm really kind of impressed at the same time with how kids who, who choose to major in a subject that is the the lines that they are actually willing to go to and investigate and 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 kind of transcend these boundaries in their own experience by traveling to former socialist countries by learning different languages, by spending time living there and kind of come on, coming up with all these kind of trans- ignoring these boundaries, but really yes, making kind of reaching out, going to the other side, yes, trying to connect and engage and I find it's really interesting. Um, and it was, as Pierce was talking about, you know, do we keep um, boundaries? What, do we get Do we get rid of them all together? Um, I'm all for engaging with boundaries and binaries. And I think, of course, it's the period of boundaries. And of course, we need to kind of uh, to understand them and uh, reflect on them. But I'm wondering, how do we engage with these boundaries without
0: replicating them? So I've seen two more hands up and then I think we should return to the front and then have some wine. Just a uh-huh. comments, my
9: comment will be very short. But I'm, I'm working with the philosopher, Conchak and he makes this distinction. He says actually the fault is the fault. So 1991, 92 is very important things. And I share his ideas which is going along with your talk. But because it was not because the utopia fall down, utopia people lived in, but the possibility of the utopia fall. So I think, and that's very much connected with the ideologies and the, lo- the depth of ideologies. Lots of it, all this discussion came up. So I think it is, what makes the date, 90, beginning of 1990, to 92, whatever you want to call it, uh, is important because the, an alternative or possibility of a couple of times they call that. So I and mean, in my works I connect this with Walter Benjamin, so again, he talks about history in a certain sense and, in a very interesting way, I think now historians has this <coughs> role of showing us the world an alternative was existing. I mean, maybe there is no Soviets anymore. It's, it's not a deal of it was a good alternative or a bad alternative at all, but there, there, there it is possible to have alternatives with an alternative way of it. And now I guess that is somehow on the shoulders of historians. Um, just very quickly, back to archives where I started.
7: Mm-hmm. Oh, really important point and it echoes what you were saying as well about you have to draw even thin lines in the sand when you think something's sort of ended but the backwash in russia is far worse than we've given space for today and i'm working on a project which you may know about best in graz mm-hmm. in, in vienna and the Skunt Bischoff is in, in in the states but he's working with Austrians, and they are actually trying to get at Russian archives and it's a highly political activity Mm -hmm. and these archives open and shut. I mean any Western scholars have been in there but for the Russians it's really serious and they have institutes which are threatened with their existence if they get it wrong in the current configuration within Russia. So it's difficult because you're talking about Western's victor's hegemony coaxing Russian historians to open up the archives and, and working with the librarians and archivists, and they're the people on the front line. And they've got several um, published volumes, which publish published in German and then English, where they coax these Russian scholars out to try and create a historiography, which is Russian base. But it's very difficult, because quite often these scholars get in there, they see it, they think, oh my god, you know, is that what we were really doing? Um, and so it's, it's highly political. So if we think we've drawn a line under it, and it's all old history, actually for our friends and our scholars working in Russia now, it's still deeply, deeply political. And um, I think you've made a really good point about, you know, who are the Russian scholars? Well, they've all got anyhow. But there are very, very few of them, and they're very frightened, actually, to work there, unless they go in. I mean, perhaps the science people You should get them into your world because it's not so highly political. Mm -hmm. And to ask Russian scholars to talk about nuclear planning is you know, they're they're happy to be in Vienna because if they have to get silent they can. Mm -hmm. And I would just to say that the research of China very very comparable to China. Mm -hmm. We've done a massive
10: Mm drawback over the last three or four years and all sorts of archival assets, not just for foreigners, for domestic researchers, and it's absolutely connected to the central party agenda that the person who became president a couple of years ago, his prestige um, uh, goes directly back to the fact that he is second generation communist revolution. It is his bloodline, so suddenly writing anything about now or China has become really, really sensitive. So um, uh, you know, even writing about the legacies of the Cultural Revolution can get you into very uncomfortable
13: situations indeed. Mm-hmm. In, in Central Europe as well, there's a huge conflicts between left and right mm-hmm. historians. And I know in, in Croatia now, for example, a historian has just become culture minister, and he's very anti-communist. So he, he prefers to focus, for example, on writing about the atrocities committed by communist forces against fascist forces at the end of the Second World War. So this does not work well for the study of, of, of socialist Yugoslavia, and this is and also they, yeah, 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 and then they closed the
5: 1956 Institute in, in Hungary, and it became a story. It's probably more um, lovely to talk about what's going on in Hungary in terms of history, but it's, it's, it's very much. Um,
0: Christy and Polly just and Johanna, did you want to yeah, say something? I
5: was, in, I was in Russia all last year. I was at the
14: postdoc in of economics, which is a little oasis in many ways, um, mostly English-speaking center. Uh, I wouldn't say that um, these were people who were particularly afraid. Although I wouldn't want to speak for them in this capacity. Um, I'd also say that there are a lot of sources that are out there that are not classified that you can get quite easy yes. access to, in particular, the economic archive, which struggles to exist at all. They keep on threatening to send it out to like or something because they just don't think anyone needs this stuff, and it's voluminous. They have tons of things that were marked secret. I mean, you can't go in and say, "Give me the KGB repression files." That's not going to happen, right? But but there are ways to get at a lot of material that really, you know, 40 years ago people would have given the right arm to get. So, I mean, there there is a lot to be worried about in the archives, but. At the same time, I'm still cautiously optimistic that certain things are still really doable, particularly from this time period.
16: Mm-hmm. I don't, don't know do if you feel that. the same way, yeah, yeah, I do. Um, yeah, I would just add, I've been running a, a sort of trip for UK graduate doctoral students for the Russian archives for the last decade, more or less. And conditions have got harder in terms of actually um, getting yeah, get to go, go there. <laughs> but once you're there, actually, what, what struck trip? me on my last two trips, but especially in the last trip last year, was actually that um, the, the the Communist Party archive after 53, the post Communist Party archive, is actually doing a massive declassification yes, project right. at the moment. I don't know the background to it, I found it rather surprising that they were said, but there was suddenly an absolutely huge volume of new files, really big, you know, central committee departments. Of course, you can't research them through the KGB, we're always to each other, you know, that's, that's very, very difficult to do. But there's not much else that's often limits. Foreign foreign policy <coughs> archive, I gather, is foreign. Ministry Archive is difficult, but I think difficult in the sense that an archivist will go and look for material that relates to your theme for you. But I, I would not say from what I understand, very little I understand the Chinese archive situation is is an awful lot better than that. Mm-hmm. Still. So it may it may not remain so much.
0: I need a final word from the floor.
16: Well uh, we've spoken here about
11: institutional constraints and how governance seem to be acting I am think that my impression is that that's not the full picture, that actually people very much want to use history, and archives, in order to justify a variety of agendas. And one of the very unpleasant ones is yes. um, I have been in a conference organizing Poland, um, which was a very, very good one on land reform, and, and there was a, a woman from the Estonian Academy of Sciences and she said, we discussed it in the Academy as to whether to uh, look at a variety of problems, to continue studying a variety of problems, and we decided only to look at what the Soviet Union, it was. I mean, the Germans were that. And, and I loved her for it. I mean, she didn't even see what well, was wrong with that way of thinking. And I would say, you see, in Poland, the archives are available. I have seen archives without any constraint relating to torture and mistreatment of people during the Stalinist period and I, I really have no problems accessing it but I can see no problems interested in that one and when I see Polish historians working yep I'm not blaming young ones because it's a very hierarchical system in, in, in terms of PhD writing <coughs> and institutes but what I can see is that there is this middle line which is absolutely Hook line and sinker for the American line that had been previously pedelled, which is Poland the chosen nation, the victims, the slider type of you know, bloodland stuff. But mm. <laughs> <laughs> they love not they're falling. They absolutely write. This this validates. You go to the British Archives and you can see the pages where on on where you can see British documents for relating to Chikowski's death. Are so deeply used because all the people want to do is find what horrible things the Westerners did to us. But their own archives and their own history, in particular history to be studied as opposed to used, is irrelevant. So before we get to institutions, there's a question of actually victimhood, which is sedu- seductively, you can get
5: actually um, addicted to it. And that's it. <laughs> Right, back to the panel. Maybe we should we go and reverse order. I'm so right,
3: right. right. um, just going to say that from from a teaching point of view, um, I think Medicine. students enjoy um, complexity, and they enjoy um, and they're capable of doing that. Um, so things like the Cuban Missile Crisis is one of the topics they enjoy most of all because they they're looking at different players. Um, and um, so, from the point of view of the academics, it would be very useful for um, you to provide that filtering down to the textbook, but even just in terms of visual resources, because I think as a teacher, if you're searching what's the latest ideas on this, uh, just simply having some recordings of the latest ideas is useful because I, I know any other topic I look at and you, you find uh, an academic uh, who will, will show you very quickly that what is written in the textbook is way behind what they're talking about and different ideas. So in terms of what you could contribute is actually just simply nice clips and some of the latest ideas of that would be useful. Mm-hmm. Thank you.
4: Um Not much. I mean, I yeah, really appreciate all the other contributions um, Yeah, and, and point out that ah. now, now people um, haven't really lived through the Cold War anymore and it actually means, I mean, on the one hand it's great because you have more critical distance to it but on the other hand people just need to actually, need, even at the undergraduate level, need to spend quite a bit of time just getting the narrative. Um, Down, uh, even if there's contestation, obviously about what the narrative might be, um, and just about I- intersections and where where that might be um, going, what that what that paradigm um, might look like. I mean, it's always hard to say where what the next paradigm is going to be. Impossible. Um, but one of the things that I think the uh, well the competition to the Cambridge uh, Handbook uh, tries to do the Oxford Handbook um, <laughs> is. You know, pursue the concept of intersection uh, farther and actually place the Cold War more in the context of the 20th century um, it's one way of, of doing that but you really end up teaching a whole different uh, course you teach up end up teaching <coughs> the Cold War as part of 20th century history mm-hmm. yeah. a little. Um, as I as I listen
2: to the all, all the contributions about the institutional challenges to doing what we do and, and sort of Um, the conceptualization and what's involved, I'm I'm reminded that sometimes as historians we're a little bit hesitant to engage publicly uh, about what we do, and and it can be very difficult and jarring. Um, uh, I've had to do it just because there are supposedly very, very smart people in uh, the country where I was raised uh, to this day that believe that there was a conspiracy, uh, that the, the end of the Cold War was basically a conspiracy, that there there was a secret meeting somewhere in Poland where all the communist leaders gathered together and they decided what was going to happen and and they keep and and very, very smart people who should know better peddle this year after year, year after year, how it, both, it was conspiratorial and as a historian it can be very disheartening on the one level but on the other level it's kind of important to keep sort of engaged publicly with it because not that they're going to stop believing in conspiracies, but it's, it's, it's important I think to, to, to do engage publicly. And it, it, we do in the classrooms, but sometimes it's, it's necessary to kind of take it outside of the classroom and,
1: and you know, fight a little bit.
14: Mm-hmm
1: uh final final thought just on the 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 difficulty of getting the russian historians involved so this fits very much with my own experience i'm i'm a western european specialist but one of my other hats is i'm on the editorial board of cold war history and when that journal was set up we deliberately sought out some russian partners and the idea was to try and make them very much an active part of the editorial board that aspect of the journal has not worked um, I, I don't think we even list them as partners any longer, etc. They, sort of the, the collaboration never really worked. And it did strike me that it, there are all sorts of institutional barriers that they were confronting, but there's a whole sort of series of different incentives in, in different university systems, etc., which meant that it was a very, very difficult collaboration. So I think it is one of the challenges that those trying to put, trying to create a truly global history of the Cold War face, that, that this, is a, this is a debate which is dominated very much by different, fortunately, Western historians, but they are mainly Western historians with a few other voices coming in, but it is still a very sort of northern hemisphere and largely Western debate, and, and that, that's, that's unfortunate, but that is where we are, um, and it's difficult to quickly uh, move away from that. I hope we do, but uh, it is a challenge.
0: Thank you very much, everyone. Well, we've certainly got a lot to think about. We'll um, have a look at and li- listen to and s- edit this uh, podcast a little bit. We'll think about some ways in which to uh, take these conversations further. By, or we'll be in touch with, with all the panelists. But thank you very, very much <coughs> to everyone here. Thank you very, very much to everyone uh, in the audience. Uh, maybe the speakers deserve a round of applause.